Um, let's, <clears throat> let's begin this evening with chanting the refuges and precepts together. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranangachami, Dhammang saranangachami, Sanghang saranangachami, Dutiyampi Buddhang saranangachami, Dutiyampi Dhammang saranangachami, Dutiyampi sanghang saranang chami Tatiyampi budang saranang chami Tatiyampi dhammang saranang chami Tatiyampi sanghang saranang chami Anati pata veramani sikapadang samadhyami Adina dana veramani sikapadang samadhyami Abrahmacharya veramani sikapadang samadhyami Musavada Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Miraya Majapamadatana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanathana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Vairamani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu
just to uh, <clears throat> reassure you, I want to reassure those who came hoping for the excellent Winnie. Um, she will return. We had to make a switch this week uh, on the nights, so uh, you get me. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Both of my parents uh, recently passed away. It's, it's coming on more than two years now. Uh, time has passed so quickly. And they, they died quite close together, just nine weeks apart. Uh, they were both close to 92 years of age. And, and they'd been together for 70 years, which is a long time to do anything, even breathe, let alone <laughs> stay married to the same person. And... Uh, they actually liked each other. Sometimes, you know, you don't notice things about your own family. Actually, Miyoshin and her husband were paying a visit a few years ago, and my folks were at least 88 at the time. And, and Miyoshin just made a remark, you know, that she was so moved, touched to see them sitting on the couch holding hands. Um, just kind of rare, I think. But uh, my sister and I were very involved with helping them in their declining years, um, it, it wasn't that easy, not that bad, but um, getting old isn't easy. And uh, my mother suffered from some dementia and my father was very reactive to that. He had a hard time with that, losing her uh, in, in a certain way. And uh, there was just a lot of suffering at times and a lot of resistance and fear and denial and anger. And uh, no matter how good our situation is, our circumstances in life, um, growing old isn't easy at a certain point for just about all of us. And you know, we don't like to think about this too much. We have a lot of conditioning to avoid the subject of aging and, and death. And often we see, well, life is happening now and, and uh, old age and death will happen down the road. And, we hope it'll be down at the end of a very long road. And there's a, I think it's almost an unconscious kind of, I mean, we almost call it an arrogance along with this attitude where we, we see aging and illness and death as something that's happening to others. And you know, we're relatively young and well and we'll deal with it later when the time comes. And we have such a culture that glorifies youth and youthfulness, in this country at least. And you know, we put youth on, the, on a pedestal and it's almost as though we're not supposed to get old if you pay attention to the media around this. And there's this huge interest, industry that caters to this cult of youth. And uh, it's almost as though aging is evidence of a personal failure or, or a reflection of our bad taste or something. <laughs> And you know, there's, there's all this anti-aging creams and lotions and elixirs and ads that promise us youth forever. And you know, as though they're, they're trying to convince us that we don't have to grow old. And it's not to say that we shouldn't take care of ourselves and you know, try to stay healthy, that just makes sense. And it's such a blessing to have good health and anyone who deals with uh, illness, chronic illness especially knows what a blessing it is to be healthy. And there's nothing wrong with trying to look our best. 
but to live as though you know aging is optional or avoidable somehow is it shows an impressive capacity for denial, which is um, you know something a lot of us are pretty good at. <laughs> but you know, if growing old is evidence somehow of our personal failing, then dying is the ultimate example of this. You could say it's the ultimate failure or the 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 ultimate bad taste is, is to die, you know, and, and we hide it away. We hide death and dying away. We, you know, we don't want to look at it. And we, there's this sanitizing of, of the dead in, in funeral parlors, you know, to make them look attractive and alive, like they're just taking a nap. And it's really pervasive in the culture, this, this avoiding of this, the reality of it trying to cover it up or make it somehow, I don't know, palatable. And the, f- the fear of death is subtle, but it's quite pervasive, I think, for a lot of us. And we, we try to keep it out of our thinking, out of our consciousness. And one way we do this is to focus on getting and having and acquiring possessions and knowledge and degrees and experiences and all of this stuff that we use to define ourselves and enhance our sense of who we are. And this can shield us from the realities of aging, sickness, and death if we, if we just keep busy enough with all this other activity. But the truth is that, that aging and sickness and ultimately death are inevitable natural part of life. It's just part of the deal. And and it's true for everyone. It was true for the Buddha. And this is a, a teaching called the Jara Sutta. Jara meaning old age or aging. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery in the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. Then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, It's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled. His back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent forward. And there is a discernible change in the faculties of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. It's kind of a little amusing, but I I love this teaching. It's so, Buddha so human as a, in it, and the kindly Ananda giving him a, a back rub there as he's warming his back in the sun. Sometimes we forget that the Buddha was a human who lived at that time in that part of the world and, and had an aging body like all of us are going to get sooner or later. And the truth is that we are, we're aging from the moment of our birth, and we have no idea when we might get sick and no idea when, we'll, when death will come for us. There's no guarantees. We aren't even guaranteed the next breath. 
And when death comes, it's going to take all of our acquisitions, anything we've gotten, put together, and including our sense of self. And so in a, in a real sense, death is not waiting down at the end of the road. It's our constant companion. It walks along with us for our lifetime. But if we have a lot of fear and resistance to aging, to illness, to death, this can rob us of a lot of vitality in our lives. And we can spend a lot of time and energy avoiding or repressing our fear. And we can wind up losing out on a lot of what a life might offer. On the other hand, if we can face our fear, if we can bring it into the open, we can actually enhance our life and open to a a new way of being, of living, a fullness and richness where we, we make the best use of our time. We don't take things for granted. And the Buddha said, you know, it's our attachments, it's what we cling to, especially our sense of self that is the cause of suffering. And, and this is the truth of the teaching of the second noble truth that Rebecca spoke about in great detail last week. And so if we can live with the understanding that death is eventually going to part us from all of our attachments, from everything that we cling to, that we hold to, including whatever sense of self we may have created. We can start letting go of these things now and maybe save ourselves from a lot of suffering down the road. There are five contemplations that the Buddha recommended that we reflect on frequently. It's a short teaching in the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, there are five facts, O bhikkhus, which ought to be often contemplated upon by everyone, whether woman or man, householder, or one gone forth as a nun or a monk. What five? I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I do for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Now that might not sound like the cheeriest list of subjects to reflect on, And sometimes when we first hear this, if it's new, we can find some resistance in our hearts, our minds, when we hear this. You know, we we all know we're going to get old and sick and eventually die. You know, we know that intellectually at least, and we know that you can't take it with you, as they say. But why would you dwell on these dreary subjects, you know? isn't Isn't it better to focus on enjoying life while we can? We might not mind investigating teachings on impermanence in the world around us. That's what these contemplations point to in great part. But, you know, these are hitting close to home. And we might think, well, you know, life is hard enough without dwelling on morbid thoughts like that. And if we're young, we might fear that that reflecting in this way will rob us of something. Our whole life seems to be ahead of us. And... 
all those possibilities and we might fear that we'll be stealing some vitality or some sense of wonder and possibility from our lives if we reflect on these things. But the point of these contemplations obviously is not to make us feel bad or or create some sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. It's not the point. And we, we could worry that reflections like this would be depressing, but we actually find if we undertake this practice that the opposite proves to be true. Because if we are living with an unacknowledged fear of death, of aging, of infirmity, then if we can come face to face with this, with our fears, we can begin to undo our conditioning around that. We can start to see that that the fears that we have are impermanent, that they're empty of anything permanent and lasting. We can bring them to the surface of our awareness and start to let them go. And they no longer weigh so heavily and we feel lighter, more at ease as a result. Great Thai forest master Ajahn Lee Damodaro said this, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Now that's a really different attitude to see them as as noble treasures. But the power of these reflections is they, they let us take our stand on the truth, on reality, the truth of the way things really are. And they can awaken in us a sense of, of the preciousness of life, connect us with a spirit of what is called samvega in Pali. Word samvega, samvega, usually translated as spiritual urgency. And I know for myself, as I've grown older, the, the passage of time seems to have really sped up. And uh, maybe some of you have noticed this, older ones of us. And years go by so quickly. You know, I turn around and another one has gone by. And, and the perception of time is not a fixed thing, of course. And, you know, one meditation period can feel like an eternity. And then a year goes by in the snap of a finger. There's a, a sutta in the place in the, again, in this uh, collection of the Anguttara Nikaya, where it's an unusual case where the Buddha is quoting a, another teacher. In this case, it's a teacher named Araka. And uh, Araka said this, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life, for none who is born can escape death. And then he goes on with a list of similes. Says, just as a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like a dewdrop. It does not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops, a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and will not last long. And just as a line drawn on water with a stick will vanish and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like this. It does not last long. These kind of beautiful images from nature that touch this this brevity, this fragility of life. 
And this is one way we can co- connect to this quality of a kind of spiritual urgency, this samvega, where we connect and touch our own mortality directly. And, and we touch the beauty and preciousness of life, not in, in a morbid way, but in a way where we, we want to make the best use of our time. And we can examine our life and what we're doing from this perspective, asking ourselves, well, what really matters? What's worth doing? in life, what's really worth doing. There's a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver that speaks to this. It will be familiar to some of you, I'm sure, but it's quite lovely. It's called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, and how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what is it it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And all of us here at at IMS on this retreat have some sense of spiritual urgency. We might not always think of it that way. We might not use that kind of language to describe it, but we're some kind of connection with this quality of samvega or we wouldn't still be here. You know, it takes a big commitment to come to a long retreat like this. And there's not very many people who would even consider doing something, doing this. But it is, I think, worth revisiting this question, what is worth doing, you know? What do I plan to do with this one wild and precious life? I think most of you have heard the the story of uh, the life of the Buddha before his awakening, when he was the prince Siddhartha in the palace. Uh, and he was, I'll just say a little brief, I'll give a brief uh, synopsis of that time, that story, said that he was protected from seeing anything unpleasant and he had three palaces so that he could be comfortable at any time of year and only beautiful people and things around and all the best of everything. And his father, it was said that at his birth, uh, he was predicted he would either become a great king or a great spiritual teacher and leader. And his father wanted the king version to happen. So he he wanted to uh, have him be happy and stay in the palace and not go wandering off as as a spiritual seeker. And it's said that he, at one point when he was near 
full near when he was grown, he he took uh, these trips outside the the palace with his chariot driver, and he encountered what are called the four heavenly messengers. It's kind of a fable. In some cases you read in the suttas, it's four thoughts that came to him. Either way that we look at that. But it's said that he, he went out and he saw at first a, an old person and had never seen one. And he asked the chariot driver, Chana, well, what's wrong with that person? He said, well, it's an old person. That happens to all of us. And the prince said, is that going to happen to me? And the chariot driver said, yeah. And he said, oh, bad news, and went home. And then he came out again, and he saw a sick person. And same question. Yes, all people, sooner or later, all people have some illness. And he said, me too? Yeah, you too. Worse news. And then he saw a corpse on the third trip. What happened there? What's going on? This is a, a person who has died. Am I also subject to this? Yes, this prince. You too, and you know, he's pretty worried by then. And then on the, the fourth messenger that he saw was was a, a, a wandering renunciate, a samana, who had a very um, calm, tranquil demeanor, and uh, and this this was the, the poss- showed a possibility of some some understanding that might might be possible there. And so it was this, this shock of confronting these truths, these, these fundamental existential truths of aging, sickness, and death, and then seeing the possibility for something, a greater understanding in the, seeing the renunciate there, that it was this very thing that propelled the prince on his journey to seek understanding on his quest for liberation. And these heavenly messengers, they relate very directly to these five contemplations that I <clears throat> read before. The, the first three are the exact same thing, aging, sickness, and death. And, and the fourth contemplation, I will grow different, parted from all that I hold near and dear, reflects the choice made by that renunciate that the Buddha saw, the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva saw, one who has made the choice to let go of, of possessions and, and the things, family, and all of that, now in order to be free of future suffering. And you could say that a nun or a monk or a renunciate of that kind, they, they go forth into homelessness, leaving behind a lot of the comforts, the home life, and possessions and status and family. And, and they give up a lot of comforts and life's pleasures and luxuries with this aim of maximizing their possibility for realizing freedom. And it doesn't mean that if we're serious about our practice, we all have to ordain as nuns and monks. It might or might not be something that was be appropriate for us in our lives. And, and either way, these lifestyles are conventions. And no matter how we choose to live, our task is the same, to abandon the cause of suffering, to abandon clinging and craving, and this is the path to freedom, no matter how we might choose to live. And there's not a direct parallel to the fifth contemplation in these heavenly messengers. It's the contemplation on the law of kamma. But there is a direct relationship with these other four. I think maybe one of us will give a talk on 
on the teaching of karma, kamma. But in the simplest way, this is just a reflection of the truth of cause and effect. The understanding that our actions bear fruit, they yield results according to their nature in a lawful way. So wholesome beneficial actions bear positive results, lead to greater happiness and peace, and unwholesome actions bear negative results, lead to greater suffering in our lives. And so if, if our practice allows us to unravel deep conditioning, to face our fears, to broaden our understanding of what's possible for us as humans, then there's more clarity in our lives about what leads to happiness, peace, and freedom. And on the other hand, what leads away from that. And so naturally, we tend to make wiser choices in our lives. And as we start to see more and more directly the cause of suffering in our lives directly in our experience and start to let go of that, to abandon it, to abandon grasping and craving and clinging, then our actions are born of a growing wisdom. And the natural result of this is an increase in wholesome beneficial actions actions that bear wholesome results. So it might be interesting to bring one or more of these five contemplations to mind. And many people reflect on them daily. It's a real practice for a lot of people in in Asia and, and in the West more and more. So take, for example, the reflection on aging, this first one of the five. I'm not gonna be able to talk about all all of these tonight, you could give certainly at least one talk on each of them. This contemplation, I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. We all know we're getting older intellectually, but can we sit with this and really get to know the truth of it? Get it into our bones and our cells. Really let it in. So if we connect with this, it puts us directly in touch with the truth of impermanence. And as I was saying earlier, you know, we might like to contemplate impermanence in the world around us or out in nature, or certainly we like to see the impermanence of things we don't like as they disappear. That's a really nice way to contemplate impermanence. But it's often not so easy when it comes to ourselves. And we don't like to see the body aging and changing, the description of the Buddha flabby limbs bent back, decline in the faculties. You know, in my case, my forehead seems to be expanding daily (laughs) as my hair grows thinner. You know, we don't like to see this. It's turned so gray now. And, you know, we can even get into denial around these things. You know, I, I have this place where it's getting really thin in back and, you know, I can't see it from the front. But every once in a while, you know, the barber holds that mirror up. How does it look? You know, and oh, I don't like that. And when I first was seeing it, it was like, oh, it's just a cowlick. It's always been that way. This was thinking in my mind, <laughs> convincing myself it just grows that way. It just looks like a bald spot. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But we do this kind of thing. You know, we want to exempt ourselves from the truth of aging, of change. Now, the 
first times that we get called sir or ma'am at a restaurant. Or... I was recently visiting a friend of mine, one of my former business partners, who's quite a bit younger than me, and, and she has young kids. And at that time, they were I don't know, preschool or kindergarten age, and, and I rang the door, and they didn't remember me. And, and I could hear one of them yell, Mom, there's an old man at the door. <laughs> and, you know, they're, when they're that little, everybody looks kind of old. But I didn't, it, really, it didn't like that. <laughs> old man. <laughs> and, you know, I was in the grocery store recently, and someone offered to help me out with my groceries. And, <laughs> you know, maybe they had been trained to offer this to everybody, but still... It, you know, our self-image suffers when these things happen. And, you know, I try to take care of myself and I, I exercise, I ride my bike when I'm, my bike and I are in the same place and I watch my diet, kind of. <laughs> and so I've decided I'm okay with being a middle-aged man as long as I get to be a youthful middle-aged man. But, you know, these self-images that we have, they're inherently problematic, aren't they? they we use them to feel good about ourselves to feel secure in some way, but they take a lot of maintenance. We have to shore them up a lot, and we can spend a lot of time and money keeping our self-image intact. And then something happens and it gets shaken or shattered. You know, someone calls us sir or ma'am or offers us a seat on the bus. That happened too. (laughs) And, you know, I'm usually the one offering the seat. And so then our self-image, it's out of date, right? And... And our usual strategy is to adjust, adjust it a bit. You know, it's like my decision to be okay with being middle-aged. and That's not the point, to get good at adjusting our, our self-image. It's, you know, our practice here is to go beyond all images and connect with the truth of things right now in this moment. And if we look at this, this aging process, in our lives, in our minds and bodies, we'll see that a lot of what we notice there as aging is an unpleasant feeling in the body or the mind. It's a lot of what it shows up as. You know, like in our bodies, let's say we wake up and we're stiff in our joints. Or we go on a hike and we get short of breath more easily than we're used to, or something like that. And this unpleasant bodily feeling, this dukkha, vedana there. But what happens often next is that instead of being mindful of these unpleasant feelings just in the moment, we don't catch it there. And then this whole story can unfold in our mind, this proliferation into the future about this image that might come, you know, where we're old and decrepit and maybe we're parked in a wheelchair somewhere destitute and wandering around aimlessly. And we can fill our minds with fear and worry as though this fantasy we've created is some inevitable reality. And you know, it's wise to plan for our old age and there might be some value to our worries and our fears in in this regard. You know, it only makes sense to plan for aging if we can to the extent where we can do that. But fear and suffering don't have to be part of that equation. And someone already spoke about a teaching, it might have been Annie, a simile of of these two arrows in relation to the teaching on 
on Vedana, unpleasant dukkha Vedana, unpleasant feelings in the body. Give a brief recap of that. So that one who does not see clearly feels a, a painful bodily sensation, an unpleasant feeling in the body. And then there's this reaction to that of anger or aversion or fear or worry. And so then they feel a sting of a second arrow as mental suffering. You know, and we tend to assume that this second arrow there is, is inevitable. We don't notice that we're the ones that are drawing the bowstring and shooting it into ourselves. You know, and an unpleasant feeling in our body is just that, you know, and in and of itself, it might be bearable in the moment. But far less bearable is our reactivity to that, our aversion, a reaction, or this mental proliferation about what it all means and a story and, and the fear of what might be in store for us down the road. That's less bearable. And we can become attached to and, and identified with an image of ourself in some future imagined future state of misery. And this can become a reality and, and can take over our world long after the initial unpleasant feeling has subsided or gone away. And so that first arrow of unpleasant feeling, that's unavoidable. We're all going to get those things, unpleasant feelings now and then. But the second one is somewhat optional. And with practice, we can feel that first arrow, the sting of Dukkha Vedana. And we might stop it right there. Might be just that. Or maybe we catch this process further down the line. And if fear and worry do come up, we see them at a certain point. We see them for what they are and what has caused them to arise. Arising in response and reaction to this unpleasant feeling, this proliferation of thoughts about these feelings. And we can just be with the fear then in that moment and watch it pass away and see that like everything else, like all other phenomena, it's impermanent. So we might have some success coming to terms with the inevitable aging of our bodies, but what about aging of the mind? Minds too are subject to aging. And we might see how our practice and, and bringing mindfulness to our experience will serve us as we age and deal with sickness and the inevitability of death. As long as we can stay alert and attentive, bring mindfulness to bear. But what if our mind ceases to function well? You know, what if our ability to be mindful and to practice starts to slip away? I mean, I'm 56 now, and I'm already noticing my powers of memory are diminishing. And if I don't write it down, forget it most of the time. You know, memory just isn't working that well. This is a, another poem. It's called Forgetfulness by Billy Collins. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you never have read, never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, 
to a little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. <laughs> well on your own way to oblivion, where you will join, join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Well, it's funny, but it gets right to the meat of the matter. I actually have gotten up in the middle of the night to look something up. I know I knew that. And I, I think I mentioned that my mother, in, in the years leading up to her path, her death, she had uh, some f dementia that became quite severe towards the end. And there was a lot of confusion there, and, and her short-term memory was what went first and was pretty well gone. And we would just have the same conversations over and over and over. And it, was, um, it wasn't easy. And you know, I take after my mother and I, I might worry that this could be in store for me, you know. Maybe these, this tendency could be hereditary. And there's so much fear in our culture about this. You know, we tend to fear loss of our mental abilities, I think, far more than our physical decay. On Monday, uh, Miyoshin uh, spoke about uh, Venerable Mahagosananda, this Cambodian monk who's so inspiring, such an inspiring being. He uh, used to come by here once in a while. He, he lived uh, the last few years of his life in a small monastery less than an hour away from here. And uh, he was called the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. It's an honorific title meaning King of the Sangha. And was nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize, for, especially for his work around uh, the banning of landmines, the use of landmines. There's a beautiful photograph at Spirit Rock Center. Some of you might have seen it. It's a picture of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda, and they're, they're bowing to one another, and they're bent over almost horizontal. Each one is trying to get lower than the other one. So much respect that they had for one another. But in his later years, Mahagosananda suffered from uh, Alzheimer's disease or, or some form of dementia, and he lost a lot of his mental capacities. And I used to go see him once in a while, just to pay respects. I remember one of the last times I saw him, um, I just went in and I just wanted to pay my respects. And he didn't know me. It wasn't like we were friends. Just this inspiring figure to me that I used to try to see once in a while. And, and I, 
I went and he started to his room, to the doorway, and he started handing me things from his shelves, presents, just stuff. And he, he had this incredibly radiant smile on his face. <clears throat> and the whole room just seemed to light up with the power of his, his loving kindness, his metta. And, and there was this very childlike quality to his demeanor then. And, and he didn't speak. I don't know if he was speaking at all at that time. But it was just like being bathed in love and light to be around him. There was a story I once read about uh, a great Indian teacher named uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. gets quoted a lot in this hall. And he lived and taught in Mumbai, in Bombay, until he was quite old. And uh, when he was well into his 80s, someone once asked him what it was like to be an old yogi. And his reply was this. He said, oh, I just watched senility come in. I see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he roared with laughter. Didn't bother him at all. (laughs) He had that ability to just watch it. I remember a story that someone told me who had been living as a monk in Thailand and they had a friend who was quite an elderly monk who they'd been very close to and very, very highly well-practiced older monk. And as he was getting very, very close to the end of his life, really in the dying process, he, he called my friend in and he said, come and, and, and be with me. He had him actually get and lie down and, and his mindfulness was so strong that he he could describe as his, as his senses and faculties began to shut down. He said, now this is going, now this is going. Amazing to think of having that power of presence and balance and strength of mindfulness, clarity of mind at that time. So when I, when I hear about people like this or this um, story of Nisargadatta Maharaj. And I think, well, you know, he's pointing to something larger beyond the brain, the thinking mind, something that has the ability, the capacity to watch the whole thing, to observe it, even as the cognitive abilities start to deteriorate. And we've all had some indication of this possibility in our practice. You know, we see the arising and passing of a thought. We see the arising and passing of all kinds of mental activity. You know, what is it that knows the arising and passing of a thought? It can even be aware of the arising and passing of consciousness. And what is that? You know, we start to touch an aspect of awareness that's larger and deeper than the thinking mind. And as our practice unfolds, we can connect with this awareness more and more in a more intimate way. This kind of pure awareness, it's not affected by anything. You know, you could liken it to the sky or to open space. Even that's too limiting. But all kinds of things can appear there. If we think of the sky, All kinds of things can show up in the sky, clouds and birds and all sorts of stuff. But the sky remains pure and unaffected by any of it. 
An aging illness and death may arise, but the awareness can remain unperturbed by that. There's a teaching by another Thai forest monk named Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko. It's from a book called Awareness Itself. He said, you have to keep being observant of the mind, of awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and of the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. In his poem uh, from the Four Quartets and by T.S. Eliot and Burnt Norton, there's a one line that says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. But with our practice, you know, what we're doing is we're standing on reality. We take our stand on it. We stand on the truth of the way it is. And we find that we can bear reality and that it's actually easier to bear than anything else. <clears throat> There's a description in, in this Theravada tradition. It's mostly what we're teaching here. Not all of, not exclusively, but there's a, a classic description of of uh, the first stage of enlightenment, of stream entry. It's just one short line. It says, the stainless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose thus. All that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. That's how that is is, uh, classically described, that realization, that understanding. It's nothing difficult or complicated there. It's just seeing the nature of things. And that which arises has change and passing away as a natural result. And, and this truth surrounds us all the time if we bother to look. And when, when the Prince Siddhartha, when he had this encounter with these heavenly messengers, and these four thoughts, And then he had the thought, well, why should I, being myself subject to aging, decay, and death, seek that which is also subject to this? In essence, you could say that he saw there was no place to rest there. There was no safety, no resort, no refuge in that which is aging, decaying, and falling away. And so we can hold these contemplations, these five contemplations, We can hold them as our own heavenly messengers or as noble truths, as noble treasures because they can lead us to seek for a real refuge, a place of true safety. 
Because if we take refuge in that which is inherently unstable and unreliable, that which is subject to aging, decay, and death, then we're placing our hearts upon something that by its very nature could never be a place of real safety. And, and it's just a setup for suffering if we do this. But we do, we do it. And then, and then we start to suffer and we, we blame the world for our suffering, isn't it? You know, we point our fingers here and there to place the blame for our, our troubles and our suffering. But the world isn't to blame for our suffering. It's just doing its thing. It's just unfolding lawfully according to causes and conditions, according to nature. I mean, really what we're doing here is coming back into harmony or alignment with nature. We somehow have gotten off track with that. There was one, I have this quotation that I I love and I use a lot. I think it's from Ajahn Chah. It sounds like something he would say, but I don't actually know where I got it. But whoever it was said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And there's a great relaxation that happens when we do this. When we start to give back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own, we we start to lay down a great burden and we begin to live more in harmony with the truth of things as they really are. I'm going to leave you with a, an excerpt from a teaching called View and Meditation of the Great Perfection. It's from the first Jamgon Kontrol Rinpoche. I'm switching gears a little. This is just part of that teaching. Make yourself at home in the natural state of pure presence, just being, not doing anything in particular. Present awareness is empty, open, and luminous, not a concrete substance, yet not nothing. Empty, yet it is perfectly cognizant, lucid, aware. Emptiness and knowing are inseparable. They are formless, as if nothing whatsoever, ungraspable, unborn, undying, yet spacious, vivid, buoyant. Nothing whatsoever, yet emaho, everything is magically experienced. Simply recognize this. Look into the magical mirror of mind and appreciate this infinite magical display. With constant, vigilant mindfulness, Sustain this recognition of empty, open, brilliant awareness. Cultivate nothing else. There is nothing else to do or to undo. Let it remain naturally. Don't spoil it by manipulating, by controlling, by tampering with it, and worrying about whether you are right or wrong, or having a good meditation or a bad meditation. Leave it as it is 
and rest your weary heart and mind. So I have a couple of minutes of quiet and let these words drift away. And I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention. There's time now for some walking meditation and then chanting at 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.